would take your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, today we're studying the ninth commandment. As you're turning there, I want to pose a question and suggest an answer to it as well. What is the difference between obedience and legalism? What's the difference? Have you thought about that the difference between obedience and legalism, particularly today as we're getting into the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. More simply, don't lie. Don't lie to one another. As we get into a command like this, I wonder if there's some people who are going to start wondering, why are we spending so much time on these commandments? Why devote a whole day to studying the issue of, of lying? Is lying really that big of a deal? I mean, we're saved by grace. Why are we spending so much time reading the law, talking about obedience, going over all of these rules and regulations? Shouldn't we just relax? We're saved by grace. What's the big deal? Isn't it pretty legalistic of us? Now, in saying that, we have to think about the way that we define legalism and what we perceive to be legalistic and what we perceive to be not legalistic. I, I, I find that, at least in my heart, it, it's a lot like driving on the freeway and, and judging who is speeding and who's not. When I drive, everyone who's going faster than me is crazy. Everyone who's going slower than me, they don't know how to drive. I and I alone am going the perfect speed and driving safely. Isn't it the same with how we judge other people and their obedience? Usually those people who are more concerned about obedience, they're legalistic. People who are less concerned than I am, they're antinomian. They have no respect for the word of God. I and I alone have struck the perfect balance of obedience through grace. Right? That, that's how we tend to approach it. We, we use ourself as the standard and accuse and judge others who don't strike the same balance that we strike. But before we talk about legalism, we can't even get into it without defining what that word is. And we have to be careful with it. Here's what legalism is. Legalism is when you try to earn your salvation through your own obedience. Right? Legalism is when you're trying to earn your salvation or earn God's favor through your own obedience, through your good life that you live, that God must be impressed with. See, some people think legalism is any time you talk about law, or any time you talk about obedience, or any time you tell people that they should be obeying. They get caught up in that and, and, and call it legalism, but that's not legalism. Right? Legalism is only trying to earn God's favor through obedience. Now, as Christians, we know that is impossible. You cannot earn God's favor. You cannot earn his love. You cannot earn the grace of Christ given to you at the cross. You cannot earn your salvation. We are saved purely by God's grace, apart from our works. And we've been seeing this, in fact, in Exodus, because it's also true for the people who lived with Moses that they also could not earn God's favor. They could not earn their salvation by doing good deeds or by obeying the law. In fact, we've said this, even as we look at just the, the structure of the book of Exodus as a whole, that the first thing that happens is that God redeems them out of slavery 
through the blood of the Lamb. He redeems them and he draws them to himself out of the, the suffering and the slavery of Egypt. He brings them into his own presence and reveals himself to them. See, he saves them first and only after that does he begin to reveal his law to them. We can't miss that. He doesn't give law first and then say, if you obey well enough and if you keep these laws stringently enough, I will redeem you out of Egypt. No, he redeems them first. It's purely an act of his grace that he goes to his people and he remembers his covenant and he brings them out. And only then afterwards does he say, now you must learn what it is to walk with God, to be in my presence, not in darkness, but in light, not in slavery, but in freedom. And he begins to reveal to them his word. So it is with us today. We are saved by his grace first. And only then do we recognize that grace actually teaches us to obey. Grace actually teaches us to put off the old man, not to walk in darkness any longer, but because of the grace that we've received through Christ, God changes our hearts and he leads us now towards walking with Christ. There's no legalism in that. There's no legalism when you're thankfully recognizing that God has saved you despite what you deserve. And therefore, now you will seek to obey. Um, I've mentioned Jerry Bridges many times. He wrote a book called The Pursuit of Holiness. And I had a friend who one time was having lunch with, with Jerry Bridges, and he asked him, he just asked him, why do you pursue holiness? And his answer was, for the sheer joy of it. For the sheer joy of pursuing holiness, and I believe that that is the answer that comes from the heart of a mature Christian, from the heart of a Christian who has walked with God for many years and known the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that grace over the years has seeped in deeply. And if you ask that mature Christian, why? Why go to all this trouble to... to, to uh, be careful of the way you walk, to seek to obey the Lord, to desire to pursue holiness. If you ask him why do that, it's not a sense of guilt, and it's not a sense of obligation. It's not a sense of desire to win something from God that you hadn't previously had. It's a sense of joy. That grace has so transformed his heart that there is a joy in walking with God. There is pleasure in communion with him. And that's where I want us to go, even as we're studying the Ten Commandments. We don't, we don't study these in order to, to rub our nose in our failures or to try to use guilt manipulation that we all might live better, but rather to see the goodness of our God who has redeemed us and to, to joyfully and expectantly ask, Father, how can we walk more closely with you? That's the goal in doing this. So let's read the word of the Lord together. I want to read for us uh, our passage before we're done, you're all going to have it memorized because we've read it about 10 or 11 weeks in a row now and we're going to do it again. So Exodus 20, starting in verse 1. Would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word? Exodus 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. 
You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath for the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Our Father, we pray again, would you open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So, is lying a big deal? I think that's an interesting question to ask, and, and I know that we're in church, and, and the pastor has just asked that during a sermon on the commandment against lying, so you know what the right answer is. But, but why? Why do we take something like this to be a big deal? We've, we've said in some of the previous commandments, I mean, when we talked about murder, like everyone agrees that murder is wrong, that it's a big deal. Stealing, everyone agrees that stealing is wrong, at least when you're the victim. Adultery. I, I think it's still safe to say, even in, in our world, most people acknowledge that that is wrong. They know that it, it's damaging, even. But we get to a commandment like this, and, and we wonder, are, are they tapering off at the end? Did, did God run out of the really important things to say? Because for most people in our world today, they would probably tell you that they don't think lying is a big deal. Or if they did tell you that, you might look at their life and conclude that they don't really believe that lying is a big deal. But as I was preparing for this, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about lying. A lot. And the way that we use our, our words and our speech, sort of the broader category, is one of the huge topics throughout the Bible. But there's one thing in particular that stood out to me. And it's in John chapter 8, where Jesus is having a conversation with some of the Jews and some Pharisees, and it's a really striking back and forth. The things that are said, most of these 
Jews are not believing in Jesus. There's Pharisees there who are, are accusing him and they're not believing the words that he's saying. And Jesus makes a very bold claim to them. He says the fact that they don't believe in him shows who they are. He says that it, it shows that they are sons of their father, the devil. That's what it says. It's verse 58. He says of the devil, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's talking about Satan, a liar and the father of lies. And he says that when you lie, you are demonstrating your conformity to the character of Satan. That's pretty stark. He also says in John, he is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. He comes full of grace and of truth. That in him is truth, and the truth will set you free. So to ask this question, is lying a big deal? If we ask Jesus, it's really a big deal. He says Satan is the father of lies. The first, the first maybe evil in the Bible is Satan in the Garden of Eden saying to Eve, you will not surely die. He's lying about the word of God to Eve, and he's tempting her through doing so. When you start with that, it's, it's no wonder to me that lying is one of the Ten Commandments, that it is something that God feels deeply about because he is truth. He speaks truth. His word is truth. The truth will free you and save you. The devil is the father of lies, and he says to his people gathered out of Sinai. It doesn't matter how you acted and lived and believed in, in all, all those people in Egypt, what they did. That was different. I have rescued you out of the world. I've taken you to myself, and now you shall not lie to one another. Here's what I want to do to say briefly what this command means, and then four reasons you shouldn't lie. And it, I don't think I need to convince you that lying is wrong. Hopefully we're, we're among those who, who read the Bible and trust it and believe it and submit ourselves to it. We know it's wrong. But sometimes we need a little help. We need to convince our hearts on a deeper level that there's more joy to be had in honesty than there is in lying. We need help. Our hearts need help in, in applying this and believing it and actually acting it out. It's not that we don't believe the commandment. But can we obey when it's hard? And so four reasons to try to help with that. But first, just briefly, what the command really means. With all these commands, we've talked about a narrow sense and a broad sense. Right? The narrow sense of the third commandment is you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. That is swearing by God's name. But there's a broader sense, too. That's a command that speaks to the way we use our words. Right? All of our speech and, and so it is with this command as well. The command, the narrow sense is, uh, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, in that command, the thing that's being pictured specifically is a courtroom setting, the bearing of witness in a trial setting where you have been called on as a witness to speak about your neighbor and what they have or have not done. And as you bear witness against them, you shall not bear a false witness. Now, if you just think of what a courtroom or a trial in, in that setting would have looked like, you see how important that is. 
right? They didn't have a well-developed forensic science department. Right? They didn't have a, a, a CSI, Jerusalem, right? Everything depended on the testimony of the witnesses, right? Even the law specified it, one testimony, one witness is not enough. There must be at least two, right? Because they have to corroborate and they must be true. They have to agree, but two witnesses is true. It's faithful. Um, and, and you think, of all the laws in the Old Testament, there were quite a few that carried a death penalty. Right? Many more than we have today, there were many laws that carried a death penalty. And so, if you're called on to be a witness in a trial setting, your word, not only is it important because there's not a lot of other forensic evidence, it's your word, and your word could mean that somebody is going to be executed because of your testimony. And the law requires that if you testify in one of these capital cases and someone is going to be executed, it's the witness who testifies who has to throw the first stone. Right? So there's a weight on your testimony. Right? And you feel that weightiness because you know you can't just say something sort of blithely or easily and then go about your day. If your testimony is that somebody has committed a capital offense and they are going to be stoned, you participate in the stoning. You have to back up your words with your actions. And so there's a great requirement here that that's meant to put weight on the testifier, the witness, just like this command is. Because testimonies were that important, it said you must not bear false testimony. Now that's the narrow sense. It's this trial setting. But we know, don't we, there's also a broader sense. The commandment doesn't mean only a trial setting, but outside that, go ahead, say whatever you want. No, the broader sense is that lying or bearing false testimony in any setting in life is forbidden. There's a telling passage, and it comes in Hosea chapter 4, where the prophet is bringing charges, right? He's the covenant lawyer. He's bringing the Lord's charges against the people because they've been unfaithful. And he says that in the land there is only swearing, lying, murdering, stealing, and committing adultery. It's Hosea 4.2, and he brings five of the Ten Commandments as charges against the people. But you hear he says lying, and that's, that's the Hebrew word that just means lying, right? It's not specifically bearing false witness, but when he says it, he reiterates it, he broadens it, because he understands the command, and it's speaking about lying in general. This is a command, right, that says you shall not lie. It's talking about our speech, in every circumstance, in every situation, you tell the truth, you must not lie. Now, why is it wrong? I want to give four reasons, and I'll try to be brief with them, but four reasons why God's people are called to honesty and to truthfulness and not to lying and deceit. Theology, character, community, and gospel. Theology, character, community, and gospel. Theology, we've been saying all along that the law reflects the character of the lawgiver. The law always reflects the character of the lawgiver, which is one reason why it's so interesting for us, even as New Covenant believers, to go back and read the law, because it comes from God, and it reflects his character. It shows us something of who he is, what he values, what he thinks is important. And in this one, it's showing us the character of God as truth. 
as holy, as righteous, as upstanding and perfect. God is the truth. Numbers 23.19 God is not a man that he should lie. God does not lie. He cannot lie. It's against his character because he's not a man. He is God. And that's good news, right? This is part of why we can trust him. Because we know that he always speaks truth and he's faithful to his word. He does not lie. He does not deceive. He does not change his mind. God loves the truth. And therefore, here's what we see, right? Israel, it's, it's been called out of Egypt and it's come to the mountain of God. And the instructions now is this is how you walk with God. God is truth, so you speak truth. Right? Growth in Christ-likeness is about conforming our character to his character, putting off the old man on the new man who's being renewed now in the image of Christ. And so, because God is truth, when we lie, as God's people, when we lie, we are profaning his holiness. We are giving bad, false witness not only in our words, but our character is witnessing to who God is because we are his people and we are giving false, profaning witness. When we lie, oftentimes, isn't it true, we're distrusting God? We're distrusting his sovereignty. We're distrusting his goodness. Something has happened that we feel we have to take the situation into our own hands. Right? We're, we're backed into a corner. We're afraid we know or we feel, we sense, right, that we can't tell the truth here. That's too dangerous. It's going to damage us in some way. Some, you know, things are out of control. I have to take it into my own hands and I will lie. I will speak what I think needs to be said. What happens in that situation if you know in that moment that you can fully trust in God's goodness? Whatever happens, does that help you then to say, I can, I can speak the truth here even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, even though, as I see it, very bad things might result or might come to me because of that. You know, maybe I deserve it. I probably do. But I know if I can trust in God that I am free to tell the truth. I don't have to lie. I don't have to try to take things into my own hands. God is truth, and his people reflect his character. That's reason number one. That's theology. Reason number two is our own character. Our own character. If you've got your Bibles open, turn to Colossians chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians 3 verses 9 and 10. Galatians 3 verse 9 and 10. He says, verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So he says to the church here in Colossae, do not lie to one another. Why? Because you are being renewed in the image of Christ. If you go back up to verse 1 in chapter 3, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Right? So he's giving this exhortation, very powerful, if you have been raised with Christ, if you are among those who have been redeemed and have been saved by the blood of the Lamb, been brought out of slavery, made alive with Christ, then seek to live in a way that is consistent with who you are. Right? Because that is you. You have been rescued. You are putting off the old self with all of its practices. 
right? All of us have an old self, the old man, the unregenerate self, and we're told to put that off. He has all these practices. And to put on, rather, the new self, right? If anyone is in Christ, new creation. New creation being formed in the image of Christ. And so what he says is, don't lie to one another, because that's not who you are. You are to understand that you are in Christ. Christ died for your sins, and he was raised to newness of life. Right? He says, set your minds on things above, not on things on earth, for, for you have died. You've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God, and therefore, how inappropriate would it be for us to continue living like we once did, living like we were still the Egyptians, living like we're still only in the world when Paul says to us, you are in Christ, and you are to live as befits the followers of Christ. Okay, so theology, it's who God is. Character, that's who we are in Christ. Now, community. And I want to think about this one. I think this is very interesting about the way we use our words and what our speech is actually accomplishing in the community that God has put us in. So, as I was preparing for this sermon, just for fun, I typed, is lying wrong, into Google. And I got some articles from the Huffington Post and from Slate, and I mean, I knew what I was getting into. It's not like I was expecting some deep moral insight from those sources. I knew what they would say, but fun nonetheless to, to read them. Obviously, they all took a sort of a situational ethics approach, you know. Is lying wrong? Well, it depends. Depends on the circumstance and what you're trying to accomplish. But, but still, there was something in the articles that stood out to me. They all recognized the power of our words. They recognized that the things that we say to one another and about one another are very, very powerful. And they have a great impact either for good or for bad, for the purposes that we intend, or maybe things we don't see coming. But they said... Essentially, you decide what you want to accomplish first, and, and therefore you know, should I lie? Should I tell the truth? Well, it depends what you're trying to accomplish. Well, I don't agree with the situational approach, but the Bible does agree that our words are very powerful. That's one of the major themes of the book of Proverbs, is that speech and words have the power to kill, and they have the power to give life. They're very formative. They can express relationships. They can create relationships. They can destroy relationships. And that's true. Our words can accomplish or destroy so much depending on how we use them. And that's part of why the Bible is going to say lying is wrong. See, one of, the goal, one of those articles, it was saying, it was giving all these circumstances and saying, if your goal is to build a relationship, then by all means, tell the truth because truth has this effect of, of building intimacy of creating a relationship, of, of empowering other people to feel like they know you and they know you more deeply. And so it said, if that's your goal, tell the truth. Of course, it said the other side as well, if your goal is to keep someone at arm's length, then by all means lie to them because that destroys intimacy and it accomplishes what you're trying to do. So, but, but we know that's how speech works, don't we? That it accomplishes things, right? If you're at a conference with all of your professional peers, and your goal is to protect your reputation. Doesn't that influence the way that you speak? The words that you choose to say? How you frame the truth 
about your professional accomplishments? If you're with your parents and your goal is to maintain smooth, non-intrusive relationships, doesn't that affect the way you speak to them? The depth that you're willing to open up to them with? What if your goal is to glorify Christ and to build up his body and to edify the church and to encourage one another, to glorify God? How does that affect the way that we use our speech and our words towards one another? Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Again, here's Paul. He's speaking to the church, but he's, he, he says it a little, a little different. He says, therefore, Ephesians 4, 25, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Right? He's saying the same thing. Don't lie. You must tell the truth. But the reason is different. Right? In Colossians, it was all about what God has done in you through Christ. In Ephesians, he says, do it because you are part of the body of Christ. And your words to one another are powerful in their ability either to build up and to edify the church or to tear down and destroy the church, to glorify Christ or to bring reproach to Christ. There's a community emphasis here. That we are members of one another. And we tell the truth because of our love for Christ and for his people. See, out there, when you're in, in the world, in a worldly setting, see, people uh, lie whenever it's convenient, right? They lie to promote their cause. They lie to protect their reputation. They lie to attack their enemies. They lie to get out of trouble, whatever it is. But Paul says, in the church, it should not be so. That when you come into this body, that here is a people, a people that God is forming where truth is valued. And we speak the truth with one another with grace, with love, because we're members of one another. We are members of one another and we recognize that there is a community emphasis and a community power in the way that we use our words. One commentator said this, he said, the concern of these commands, and he's talking about the Ten Commandments, especially the last five, he says, the concern is not merely for individual or personal piety. The concern is to preserve a community of believers who are building one another up and united in their fellowship. As important as personal integrity is in all these matters addressed from the fifth to the tenth commandment, God's word always has in view the effect of the individual's behavior on the whole body. See, here's one of the things that God is doing through the Ten Commandments. It's not merely personal edification, although it is. He wants to build character. It's also building a community, forming a people into not just individuals who give glory to God, but into a community that together in their life, in their shared life, will give glory to Christ. And in that reality, in that perspective, it is vitally important how we speak, how we tell the truth with one another, because Christ is truth. Okay, so theology, character, community, and gospel. Gospel. And I want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 and read a few verses out of 1 Peter chapter 2. And one of the things that Peter is going to do is he's going to talk about Christ as the one who is perfect in his speech. No deceit was found in his mouth. And one of the reasons that he's going to say that that is so impressive, so, so just glorious, 
is because he's the one who ultimately had the most reason for it, right? Falsely accused, falsely beaten, falsely executed. And yet in the midst of that, he responded with no deceit in his mouth at any time. And he's building us up through this. He's pointing us to Christ to strengthen us because we are often tempted to lie to get out of exactly those things, right? He's talking about the fact that there is often a cost to telling the truth. And we know that. That's why it's a temptation to lie, because there's a cost to saying what is true. And yet no one ever had a greater cost to telling the truth than Jesus. 1 Peter 2, we'll start in, in verse 21. Well, start in verse 20. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So here's what he's saying to the people. He's saying there are times when you do wrong and you suffer for it. That's, there's nothing in that. He says, but sometimes you will do what is right and you will suffer for it. And he says, you need to know, and that will happen a lot, won't it? As, as someone who's seeking to live a life that is pleasing to Christ in the midst of a fallen world, yes, there will be times when you do good and you will suffer for it, especially if you're committed to truth. But he says, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It might hurt. You might lose out on benefits that you dearly wanted. You might suffer something that, that causes the loss of something valuable to you and there will be pain. But he says to you, for you to suffer because of telling the truth is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He says, that's exactly what Christ did. He suffered, he was reviled, he was threatened, and yet there was no deceit that was found in his mouth. He did not return his reviling. He did not threaten when suffered. But what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Isn't that what we need when we're tempted to lie? Isn't that what we need when there's something that's pressing and you say, oh, if I tell the truth, there's going to be loss, there's going to be pain, there's going to be discomfort for me personally. There's going to be some consequence. So there's a temptation to lie, to squeak out of it, but peace says Jesus continued in the midst of that, entrusting himself to God. Knowing that if he did what was pleasing in the eyes of God, the reward would be greater than the pain. And then Jesus also bore your sins in his body on the tree. Why? In order that you might die to sin and live to righteousness, right? That's, you see how he sees grace as leading us towards Christ-likeness? He, Jesus bore your sins, why? In order that you might die to sin. In order that you might live to righteousness. In order that you might die to lying and falsehood and deceit. In order that you might live to truth and honesty and righteousness. And the character of God. Delighting in the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, this 
is the power to be honest. See, that's why this is not just moralism. It's not just legalism. It's not just saying, come on, let's be good, let's do better. It's saying this is who God has called us to be through Christ. And and the power to truthfulness is not going to be your own resolve. The power is that Christ has borne your sins in his body on the tree. And because he did that, you may die to sin. You may commit yourself to honesty because he has taken your sins, he absorbed the wrath, he took the punishment, he gives the grace, he gives the life, he gives the joy, the mercy, the power of obedience. It's his grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to walk in the ways of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we give you thanks for Christ. We give you thanks that even when we were yet dead in our sins and trespasses, you gave your Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins to pay the penalty, to take the wrath, to give newness of life. All of your mercy and grace poured out on us through Christ. We give you praise and glory and thanks. We ask now that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ might continue to be at work in changing and transforming us into the image of Christ. Father, may we, by the power of your Spirit, continue to put off the old man with its falsehoods and put on the new man, renewed in honesty after the image of Christ. Continue your work in our hearts for the, for the, uh, for the glory of our Savior who died on the cross. Amen. our song of reflection, All I Have is Christ. Let's stand together and